If you like what you're listening to, support this podcast on Patreon. Patreon.com, search Phil Dawson, or find a link in the show notes and join up. It's very much appreciated. Thank you for listening. Chapter 5, Sundering. The world changed after Koilos and became a darker place in the months that followed. Urza retreated to the quarters he shared with his brother as soon as the three investigators returned to the camp, emerging only for meals. Soon after, Mishra moved out of those quarters, taking a tent among the diggers. He could have taken permanent housing among the students, but Takesha felt the young man was making a statement, both to his brother and to her. The two brothers sniped at each other continually now. Urza noted publicly that Mishra had instructed the students to dig too deep. Mishra shot back that Urza was demanding more students to clean the artifacts than he truly needed. Mealtimes were particularly stressful. The arguments were no longer exchanges of wordplay and ideas. An edge of steel, like the blade of a dagger, had slipped into the boys' conversations. Questions now seemed like barbed hooks. The answers held hints of threat and challenge. A few times, Mishra blew up at his brother at the table, and after a month, Urza stopped attending the communal dinners at all, instead taking his meals in his quarters. He had apparently used Mishra's half of the room to expand his own workspace, which irritated his brother all the more. Mishra appeared at dinner for a month beyond that, brooding over the meals. Then he began to dine in the diggers' camp. Neither brother spoke of personal matters, nor to Takesia, nor to anyone else. To the old scholar, they were polite and tried to keep the conversation focused on the nature of the excavations for Mishra or on the latest reassembled marvel for Urza. When the subject of the caverns came up, however, both young men would turn taciturn and abrupt. In part, Tokasia felt it was the stones that had altered their relationship. Urza had his fit to his claw-like clasp of gold and wore it around his neck on a chain. Mishra, too, wore his around his neck, but in a small leather sack, dangling from a thong in the manner of the Falaji talismans. Tokasia did not know if the shattered power stone had created the anger within her two best students, or merely unearthed and crystallized resentments that had fermented for years. Soon after Koilos, she went to each and asked to examine the stones themselves, seeking to unlock the mystery. Urza refused to give up his stone. Instead, he said, he wanted to examine it himself. Surely Tokasia trusted him to make a fair and rational examination. What he did not say, though, Tokasia sensed it, was that he was afraid she would turn it over to his brother. Mishra would play on the old scholar's feelings. He was the younger brother, therefore Tokasia would give Mishra a chance to examine both halves of the stone. Mishra, in turn, would not give up his stone. If Urza kept his half of the stone, he said contemptuously, he would hold his as well. What he did not say, but what Tokasia felt, was that he was afraid she would turn over the stone to his brother. Urza would appeal to her reasoning, Urza was the elder brother, therefore Tokasia would give Urza the chance to examine both halves of the stone. The archaeologist was thoroughly frustrated. Neither brother would move without the other. Neither trusted her sufficiently to let her examine the gems. She turned to the other stones, both the flickering fragments that still held some power and the dull, cracked remains that had lost their energies. There was nothing there. None of the other power stones they had discovered had similar powers. Mishra's stone 
seem to induce weakness in its targets, whether living or artificial. Urza's gem apparently strengthened its targets and, in fact, allowed the spark of animation to enter the barest of mechanical husks. No other stones, Stokasian noted sadly, seem to have encouraged such avarice and anger in their possessors. The nature of the energy itself continued to elude Tokasia. She knew it existed and that it could be harnessed by the devices using the Thran designs they had deciphered. Yet the nature of that energy was beyond her. What was it, or how did it come into being? Was it natural to the crystals, or was it something the Thran had entrapped there? The questions were there, but not the answers, and her own failure to answer darkened Tokasia's mood further. To be fair, the black mood in the camp was not all the brothers' doing. At least not directly, more Falaji than Amal had expected were offended by the fact that the archaeologist and her colleagues had found the secret heart of the Thran. Diggers abandoned the camp in droves. Old Amal was clearly embarrassed by this turn of events, since he had assured Tokasia that few of his people would be scared away by ancient legends of the long-dead Thran. Indeed, as word of the discovery of Koilos spread, the flow of artifacts recovered by the desert people, so abundant in previous years, dried up almost entirely. Part of that drought was caused by an increase in desert raids. A number of tribes, such as the Suwardi, quiet for decades, were more active now. They raided merchant caravans and even struck into Argiv itself. The school had not been attacked, owing to its own group of native Falaji, but it was only a matter of time, Takeja felt. Amal agreed. There are numbers beyond numbers of families, tribes, clans among the Falaji, he said one evening, ten months after Koilos. They sat beneath Tokasia's tarp, sipping navis. Most of the rest of the camp had gone to bed. The only lamps still burning were from Urza's quarters, and those had been dimmed. The brazier between Tokasia and Amal crackled low. The Falaji spread his fingers and ticked off a roster of tribal names. The wealthy Muharin, the once mighty Gestos, my own tribe, the Taladin, he said. There are others like the Tomakul, who have the nearest thing you outlander people would think of as a city. The Tomakul claim general rulership over the others, but they are not the true masters of the various tribes either. Their clan follows strong leaders, so for one generation, everyone followed the Gestos because they had a wise leader. For the next, they followed the Muharin because the Muharin had a great warrior as their leader. And now the desert people follow a new tribe, Tokasia said bitterly, sipping at her nabis. She took it hot, in the desert style, but never cared for the cinnamon. The Suardi, agreed Amal. They moved in from the southwestern lands when I was a boy, from the area bordering the outlander state of Yoshia. They have a Kadir, a leader who has gained many allies. He talks of old times when the Falaji were powerful, and he fans resentment against the coastal nations, particularly those that are spreading into Falaji lands. Are these Suardi your leaders now? asked Tokasia. Amal shrugged. Not like your kings and warlords and nobles are leaders. My people put great value in respect. They respect the Suardi for what they have accomplished and therefore listen to their message. Many worry about the coastal nations moving inland, taking land from the traditional Falaji grounds. Many worry about the discoveries we are making. We are discovering things for everyone, said Takasia flatly. That I agree with, returned Amal. And I thought the others would agree with as well. But they see the artifacts they bring in to trade, as well the ones we dig up, move eastward to Argiv, southeast to Corlys, or south to Yosha. They worry what great and wondrous things are being lost to them. And these Suardi play on that worry, concluded Tokasia. They gather power by creating a common threat, whether one is truly present or not. 
Amal nodded and said dryly, You are familiar with the process. Tokasia laughed and took a long pull of her nobbies. Basic Argivian politics. The kings of Argiv have survived for years on that principle, playing one faction against another. They do things in Penragon that would make your head spin. At least the Falaji are honest about being someone's enemy. That is why we have not moved, and should not move, the base to Koilos, said Amal. The only way into the canyon where the caverns are found is through the deep desert, Tokasia began. The deep desert is held by Suwari tribe and their allies. Word has gone out that any non-Falaji found in their lands will be considered Suwari property, to be disposed of as they see fit. Tokasia spread her hands and looked at the wooden surface beneath her wrinkled fingers. The desert had practically won its battle with the great Argivian table. It was wobbly and brittle now. The last of its pearl inlay had surrendered to the differences in temperature and to the dust. Soon she would have to break it up for firewood. Tokasia had not realized how much she would miss the table, both as a level space and a reminder of the distant Penragon. They've had this problem with the tribesmen had Urza not been so brilliant with maps and calculations or Mishra so close to the desert tribes and their legends. Tokasia shook her head. The past with the past as invalid as the rocks from which she and her followers pulled the Thran devices, as solid as the metals they carefully pieced together in the workshops. A silence grew between her and Amal. The only sound was the crackle of the brazier. "'You're not thinking of the desert tribes or your dig site,' said Amal at last. "'You're thinking of your two young men.' Tokasia let the silence continue, then said, "'They have been fighting again.' Ever since they visited the secret heart of the old ones, said Amal. Tokasia shot the leader of the diggers a look, and he held up his hand. No, they did not tell me what happened there. No one tells this old digger anything. But it's clear to me and to everyone else that they have had a great falling out. The kind of battle that brothers do not recover from. Last week they almost came to blows at the dig site. He shot her a sideland glance. You know? Tokasia nodded. Urzra thought Mishra was digging too deep to find any parts for an onulet. When the diggers found such parts, Urzra all but accused Mishra of planting the find there in the trench. Mishra found the pieces of that anulet's shoulder mounting fairly, said Amal. But then he drove the diggers on into the heat of the midday when we normally nap. He would have been happy with nothing less than a complete onulet arising from earth, fully formed and alive, just to prove his brother wrong. Tokasia nodded. Each day they get worse, and neither wants to talk to the other about it. Whenever they're in the same place, the conversation breaks down into argument. Then each continues arguing with me afterward, trying to show me where the other was wrong. And when I try to show them that they may have been wrong, each acts as if I've sided with the other. The past few months have been the worst of all the years I have known them. Amal leaned forward. The Falaji believe that man is made of stone and fire, sky and water. The perfect man holds all these elements in balance. The young brother, he had more fire than he needed on the first day I met him, and he has more fire than he needs now. The older brother is consumed by stone, cold and unyeamed, unable to bend. He will shatter and will be worn away. The Argivians have a similar belief, though few follow it these days, said Tokasia. The world is divided into reality and dreams. The old temple priests of Argives would say that both these young men have been consumed by their dreams and are forgetting their reality. Amal grunted. Does Urza speak of dreams to you? Tokasia shook her head. 
Urza speaks to no one anymore. Not to me, not to his brother. She looked at the leader of the diggers. Does Mishra? Amal nodded. Not to me, but he does speak to Hajar, one of my younger assistants, who is closer to him in age and temperament. Hajar has been bitten hard by the fire as well, and he dreams of being a great warrior. I fear we will lose him to the Suwari, and soon. But Mishra has told Hajar, who has told me, and I tell you, that Mishra has dreams. Of what? asked Acacia, pouring herself more nabees. Darkness, said Amal, spreading his fingers out to catch the warmth of the brazier. He says there is darkness out there, a darkness that sings to him and tries to draw him to it. It tugs at him like a jackal hanging on to his trouser leg, and he fears it. He said that, prompted Tokasia. Amal shrugged. Misra talks to Hajar, Hajar talks to me, I talk to you. Each time someone talks to another, things are added, other things forgotten. Perhaps you should ask him yourself. He probably would not tell Hajar, Hajar, I'm afraid of my dreams. But Mishra does sleep in the diggers' camp, and everyone knows he sometimes awakens in the middle of the night, shouting at things that are not there. Tukasia was silent for a moment. She could not say if Mishra had done this before Koilos, when Mishra and Urza were quartered together. But Urza had never said anything about the matter, nor had Urza spoken of his own dreams, if indeed he had any. You know they each took something with them when they left Koilos, asked Tukasia. The gems of power, replied Amal. They look like the ones that you say move the old ones' machines. Each of the young masters has one, and each man keeps his stone close to himself at all time. Could the stones be responsible? queried Tokasia. Could their energies be causing the young men to act like this? Amal shrugged. Tokasia added, Do you know what their stones can do? Mishra has not talked to me of the matter, said Amal flatly. Perhaps to Ajar, but he let the words hang in the hot desert air for a moment. Urza's gems make things stronger, said the scholar. He called it his might stone. Mishra seems to have the opposite effect. Urza has named it the weak stone. Amal chortled. That probably does not sit well with the younger brother, to have the weaker stone. It doesn't, said Tekesia. Urza knows it, so he calls it that to Mishra's face. What does Mishra call it? asked Amal. Tekesia thought for a moment. I've never heard him refer it to it as one thing or the other. It's his, Mishra's stone, and the other is his, Urza's stone. That sounds right, observed Amal. The older brother always has a tendency to name things, to identify them. It makes them his, I suppose. Tekesia sighed. All these years they have been with us, she said, and they remain as great a mystery as the energy within those power crystals, as the Thran themselves. The Thran, the old ones, you and I will understand eventually, replied Amal, for they have the good sense to stay dead. The living, they keep changing as time goes along. It's harder to climb upon a moving mount. Old Falaji saying, Tekesia raised her cup. Old digger saying, said Amal, returning the salute, from this old digger in particular. The conversation moved to other subjects, such as the new layer of hard sandstone they encountered at the second site, and whether Bly would need additional outriders for his caravan, and how much he would try to charge Tokasia for them. Finally, Amal made farewells and left the tarp. The night was pleasant, and Tokasia knew she would probably sleep sitting up in her camp chair, wrapped in a soft fur from dwarven sardia. Amal slowly walked through the camp, 
The fires had been banked, and the lamps and all been extinguished. Even the lamps from Urza's quarters, usually the last to be doused, were now darkened. The old digger stood in the center of the camp and looked upward at the stars. The moons had not risen yet, and above the old phalange the sky pinwheeled in a heavy scattering of stars. Amal tried to imagine if the sky over the far-off coastal cities looked this beautiful, and decided against it. Fires burned long and wastefully into the night there, obscuring the sky with their smoke, so much like city people everywhere. There was a movement to his left and the sound of a sandal scraping against the dirt. Slowly Amal turned toward the noise, keeping his head raised toward the stars, but allowing his eyes to sweep the shadows. The moonless night was dark, but not dark enough to foil the sharp eyes of the phalange. There was a rustle along the shadowed side of one of the student barracks. Then came a soft, muffled cough. "'Someone there?' called Amal, suddenly looking directly at the shadow. "'Show yourself, shadowy one, or I'll wake the camp.' A lean form stepped from the shadows, dressed in dark linen, thin and wiry. Amal recognized Hajar, chief among his assistants. The young Falaji smiled guiltily, his teeth filling his narrow face. "'It was a beautiful night. I could not sleep,' he said. "'I thought I would go for a walk.' Amal smiled. "'It is a beautiful night, and I have been walking myself,' he said. "'Let us stroll back together.' The old digger turned away, but Hajar did not move from his position. "'Are you coming?' Amal asked, then added with a smile. "'Or are you not alone?' To the shadows behind Hajar, he said, "'You can come out now as well.' Amal had expected Hajar's companion to be one of the noble girl students entrusted to Tokasia. Such romances, though officially frowned upon, were common enough, and Amal still remembered his own youth well enough to know all the justifications and excuses one makes in such situations. A stern lecture and a word to Tokasia to keep an eye on the Argivian girl was all that usually resulted from such a discovery. Amal was thus surprised when the figure who stepped from the shadows was not a young woman, but the familiar, broad-shouldered form of Mishra. Amal's smile turned to puzzlement, and the old digger said, "'Good evening, young master. Are you enjoying this beautiful night?' Mishra smiled, and even in the starlight, Maul could see it was thin, inconsequential smile. "'I needed to fetch something from Urza's, from my old quarters,' he said. "'I brought Tajart along to help.' "'I see,' said Amal cautiously. "'This something was so critical that you needed to fetch it now, in the dead of the night, when even your brother would be asleep?' "'Yes,' said Mishra. The young man seemed to be turning the idea over in his mind a few times, and apparently he decided to stick with it. His back straightened, and he said again, Yes, something important. Do you doubt me? By this time Amal had closed the distance between himself and the pair. He could smell the odor of desert wine on them. It was more powerful than on himself. Not at all, young Master Mistra, and this something is so heavy you need a second man, or perhaps a third, to carry it. Yes, said Mistra then, perhaps feeling he'd given too much away, corrected himself. No, not really. Hajar's here more for the company. Ah, said Amal. Well, I have a need for Hajar. If you can spare him, he can run an errand for me. Mishra's face clouded, and Amal wondered if the lad would continue alone or merely abandon his task. It was obvious he was heading for his brothers, and Amal thought it likely the younger brother planned to confront Urza with an argument. The youth had obviously taken his courage from a wineskin, a time-consuming task that accounted for the late hour. Mishra gave another thin smile. Of course, if you need Hajar for some matter, I can gladly do without him. 
A small matter, said Amal. I could use the help, but I tell you again, I don't think your brother is awake. His lamps are out. Mishra shook his head. Sometimes my brother lies awake in the darkness and plots into the night. I would be surprised if he were truly asleep. Amal raised his hands in mock surrender. As you say, you know him better than I. Come, Hajar, I have work for you. The wiry Falaji crossed toward Amal, and the older man turned. The pair started back toward the diggers' camp. Amal looked back. Mishra had already melted back into the shadows. So why were you there, Hajar? The narrow-faced youth scowled in the starlit darkness. I do not know if I can tell you. We are Falaji, said the older man. If I cared to find out, I could show that your mother's family and my mother's family shared a common mother. Come out with it. What were you up to, stinking of nabbies and slinking through the shadows like jackals? The younger Falaji stopped. His clearly motion and moral thought did not work simultaneously. Amal waited. At last, the youth said, Young Master Mishra was angry. Angry at Urza? asked Amal. The shadow nodded in the darkness. About how Master Urza was always picking on him, was always showing him up, how his brother was trying to trick him out of his stone. And finally he got drunk enough and angry enough to do something about it finished Amal. The narrow shadow shrugged. Yes, that was it, thought Amal. Wake your brother up in the middle of the night to finish an argument from three days before, get all your thoughts lined up, soak them with alcohol, and set them on fire. If he was planning for Urza to be awake when he got there, a nasty thought crystallized in Amal's mind. Perhaps the brother was indeed going to Urza's to retrieve something. The thought sent a small chill up the old digger's spine. Quickly, he said to Hajar, I have an errand for you, after all. Go up to Takesha's tarp. She should be sleeping there in a chair. Wake her. Tell her what you had told me, and tell her to meet me at the brothers, uh, at Master Urza's quarters. Hajar hesitated. I don't think, he started, Amal hissed. You've had too much to drink to be trusted and thinking, lad. I tell you to fetch Mistress Tokasia, and fetch her you will, or the next trench you dig will be for the student's privy. Now off with you. The sharpness of the words cut like a knife through Hajar's drunken confusion. Very much awake and alert, the lad moved quickly toward the rocky outcropping where Tokasia kept her tent. Amal shook his head and quickly made for the cabin where Urza and Mishra had grown up. It was a heavy, squat thing made of rough-hewn timbers with a gray slate roof. An inkly stout door of candle-waxed paper windows sealed it against the desert dust. Comfortable for one, thought Amal, suitable for two young boys, and tight for two young men, impossibly so for two young men who were angry at each other. A lamp now glowed through the windows, so if burglary was Mishra's intent, it had been foiled. There were voices as well, sharp and argumentative. As Amal approached the cabin, the voices were loud to his hearing, but indistinct. Mishra's voice was a drunken bellow, while that of Urza's had a sharp, nasty twang. Amal stood across the path from the cabin's doorways. Unless something or someone came flying out the door, he decided, the best course of action would be to wait, at least to wait for Mistress Tokasia. The sound spread. Other lamps were coming on, from the barracks and quarters of the older students. If young Master Mishra was hoping for a private argument, Amal mused, he had been denied that as well. Now Urza was shouting. All Ahmad could make out were cries of thief and liar. Tokasia arrived accompanied by Hajar. The young Falaji took stock of the situation and immediately disappeared in a puff in the night air heading back to the diggers' tents. He would no doubt spread the word that the two brothers were finally having it out. Tokasia seemed groggy, as if suddenly awakened. She ran her fingers through her short, graying hair. Why haven't you stopped them? she asked Amal. 
I haven't heard any furniture breaking, returned the older man. Even then, we should wait a bit longer. This fight has been brewing for months between these two. They need to get it out of their systems. There was a sound of glass breaking within the quarters. Turkasia took a step forward toward the cabin's front door, but Amal held out his arm. Every time the boys fight, someone breaks up the argument, he said. Let them go on. They may get some cuts and bruises, but they need to sort things out their way. The shouting was almost incoherent now, more like barking wild dogs than the sound of human voices. It was another crash, this time something heavy. Most of the students had gathered out in the front of the cabin, and some of the diggers had arrived with Hajar. Then there was a new glow visible through the windows. The golden radiance of the lamp was joined, then overwhelmed by beacons of red and green. Maul lowered his arm. He had never seen such colors before from a lamp. He wondered if the brawl had started a fire. Suddenly the idea of letting the two young men pummel each other into understanding did not seem as wise as it had had a moment before. The stones, said Tokasia, her voice dry with fear. They're using the stones against each other. The Thran stones? asked Amal, but he was speaking to empty air. The ancient scholar was already running for the door. A moment later, Amal followed her, waving the others to stay back. Tokasia was through the door first, Amal hot on her heels. The Falangi smelled smoke and noticed small scorch marks burned along the interior of the room, though there were no outright fires. The brothers were at opposite ends of the room. Each clutched his stone. Urzas flickered with the red bolts of flame, while Mishra's radiated lances of greenish light. The bolts met in the center, almost as if physical arms grappled with one another, each color trying to overwhelm the other. The display of power was taking its toll on the brothers. Mishra was sweating like a winded horse. Blood streamed from his nostrils. Urza's face was a rictus of concentration and pain, and he too was bleeding from the nose. Mishra was slightly crouched, while his brother stood haughty and erect, each clung to his power stone with both hands. The room itself had been affected by the bolts of might and weakness. It was hot in the cabin. The air shimmered with a song of power, a rising, throbbing noise that grew louder each moment. Neither young man would yield, and the space between them glowed brighter by the moment. Tokasia raised her hands and shouted something Amal did not understand. Neither brother paid the slightest attention. So intent were they on their private duel. Tokasia cried out again and stepped forward into the bands of red and green, her hands raised as if she were trying to physically silence the boys and their gems. Amal joined her cry himself and leapt forward, but he was too late. Tokasia broke one of the ruby-green, jade-red beams. As one, both brothers stared up at her. Their concentration slipped, their lancing beams suddenly sprayed in all directions, and the room exploded. Amal felt himself physically lifted by the blast and thrown backward out where the doors should have been. The blast blew away all four of the walls and most of the roof and showered the observers outside with splinters and flaming chunks of wood. Amal realized he was looking at the stars again. They spun gently above his upturned face. Slowly, he pulled himself to his feet, feeling something soft give in his left knee. The old digger grimaced and pulled himself up. There were moans around him from the wounded onlookers and shouts from those attending them. He had not heard the noise a moment before and wondered if he had gone deaf for a moment from the blast. There were more torches now, he saw, and someone had lit a bonfire. Amal staggered to his feet and saw the remains of the old cabin. It was almost entirely destroyed, only one corner still standing. The entire perimeter was smoking, framing the forms within. There were two, kneeling over a third. Amal limped into the wreckage of the cabin, Tukasia's form lay on Urza's lap, while Mishra knelt at her side. She lay like a broken doll, her neck canted at an odd angle to her body, 
Mishra held his fingers to her neck, then looked up at Amal. The younger brother shook his head. Urza looked up as well, ignoring Amal and glaring at his younger brother. It was a hate-filled stare that blazed through the tears streaming down his cheeks. Maul could not remember Urza ever crying in all the time the young man had been in camp, but beneath the tears, the digger saw an accusing fury in Urza's eyes. Mishra fell back from his brother as if he had been struck. He rose and staggered a few paces away from Tukesh's body. Urza did not move, nor did he say anything. Mishra took a step away, then a second, and then the younger brother was running, away from the shattered house and into the night. No one stopped him in his flight. Amal laid the last of the Cairnstones in place. The students had paid their respects, as well as the diggers, and Hajar had volunteered to make a marker stone to commemorate her resting place. In an area littered with holes and ditches, they buried her in the rocky soil of the outcropping where her tarp had been pitched. Urza remained beside her through the entire day as the body was dressed, the prayers spoken, old Argivian invocations and Falaji chants, and the last of the stones were laid over her. Of Mishra, there had been no sign, and everyone assumed he would not be seen again. Urza's face was gaunt from grief, and Amal for a moment thought the young man could be taken for older than Tukasia had been. The digger started to say something to him, but Urza held up his hand, silencing him. Amal nodded and retreated, limping on his injured knee, leaning on one of Tokasia's old staves for support. It was the afternoon of the first day after Tokasia's death. At dawn of the second day, Amal returned to find Urza in the same position, as if he had been turned to stone to serve as a statue commemorating Tokasia's passing. Master Urza, we must talk, said Amal softly. Urza nodded. I know. There is much to do. There's still school to run, diggings to continue, things to take out of the ground, he said the last in a flat, toneless voice as if it were the last thing he wanted to do. We have things we must discuss, Amal. Most of the other students and diggers are all right, though a handful were injured in the blast, nothing serious. Urza nodded, and Amal wondered if Urza had even thought of the others in the camp, or of his own minor injuries, the scrapes and bums along his arm and neck already had nasty dark scabs on them. Mal shook his head and forced out the words, It would be best to send the students back to Pendragon as soon as possible. Urza looked up at Amal, surprised. Awareness flickered behind his eyes, dead a few moments before. We need to continue Takesha's work, the young man said, stammering in his intensity. We need to keep going. Amal sighed. The Falaji follow people more than ideas. The Falaji respected Tokasia, and so they have followed her. They might have followed your brother who lived among them, but they do not know. You rarely spend time with them. They will not stay. We can get other diggers, protested Urza. There are students. We can use them. Without Falaji present here, you would be more of a target for desert raiders, Amal said. There are increasing numbers of Falaji who do not like Argivians in what they think of as their land. You'd have to bring in more men from Argive itself, soldiers, diggers. It is not a place for students anymore. Urza's mouth was a thin line. I see. Amal could almost see the young man's thoughts as one conclusion led to another. Tell me, he said finally, am I safe here now? Amal looked at the cairn. He had once assured Tokasia that there would be no trouble and had been wrong. He would not make a similar mistake again. I do not think you are, 
The students will be safe, but there are those among my people who blame you for Tokesh's death, for Mishra's disappearance. Urza looked down. I don't know where he is, he said softly, then added, I wish he'd come back. Amal nodded. I wish he would as well. He put his hand on the young man's shoulder. Urza shuddered for a moment, unused to the touch, and shied away. The digger dropped his arm and left the young man at the carn. A message about the disaster was sent to Penragon by Ornithopter, and the craft returned with Lauren and, to Amal's surprise, Ricklau. The young noblewoman was to take stock of Tokesia's works and writing, while the older nobleman was to oversee the striking of the camp. A caravan was already being sent out from Penragon by worried parents, fearful that savage desert raiders were about to swoop down and slay their now unprotected children. Urza was gone by the time the evacuation caravan arrived. He had spent two days with Lawrence summarizing Tokesia's notes, then left with another, smaller caravan heading south. The young man told Lauren he had no desire to return to Penragon. To Amal, he made clear he had no desire to remain and watched his beloved camp abandon. Of Mishra, there was no sign. Though Ricklau ordered ornithopter patrols to try and find him from the air, if he ever returned to the camp, none saw him or admitted to seeing him. Amal was the last to see Urza off. None of the other Falaji wanted to be near him, and as there was no real work to do, the diggers themselves were drifting off in twos and threes. The camp felt like it was a town of ghosts, still occupied but missing its own secret heart. That heart had died with Tokasia. Amal watched from beside Tokasia's car as the caravan made up of friendly Falaji wound its way out of camp. Urza was on foot, using one of his mentor's staves as a hiking staff. That and a few drained and cracked power stones were the only things that he took from the camp. Those things and his knowledge, thought the Falaji digger. Urza turned, looking up at where Amal stood. No, corrected the old man. He was looking at where Tokasia lay. Amal was too far away to see the young man's face clearly, but he saw Urza's shoulders, dejected and defeated. Amal thought he understood. The young man had lost his mentor, his home, and his brother all because of the actions of a single night. What Amal did not understand, and what would take years for him to understand, was which of the three losses was the hardest for the young scholar to bear. <laughs>